Hello, everybody. This is Two Seats at the Bar. My name is Shale Sage, and I'm here with today with my co-host, Debbie Davis. Many of you have been wondering what's going on with the show. Well, in short, me and Debbie felt like the show was getting stale. So we decided to make a change. We listened to a bunch of different podcasts, figured out what we liked and what we didn't like, and came up with the format that you'll be listening to today. In particular, me and Debbie will be diving into a very particular subject every month. We'll be discussing the history, the science, and the modern-day relevance of that particular subject. So without further ado, I give you the first new episode of Two Seats at the Bar. Why are Debbie and Shale so obsessed with ice? The old-fashioned, the margarita, the pina colada. What do all these drinks have in common? Ice. Seems pretty simple, right? You'd think so. But in reality, ice wasn't commonly used in drinks until about 150 years ago. Ice, usually cut from lakes or rivers, was typically reserved for the wealthy. They'd have a block of ice cut, then stored in a small ice house on their estate. They typically use it to cool down a warm bath in the summer, or to cool down their warm beverages on a hot day. But no one ever thought that ice could be an everyday thing for an everyman, until Frederick Tudor came along. Born to a wealthy Bostonian lawyer in 1783, Tudor lived a very privileged life, to say the least. At the young age of 13, he decided to dedicate his life to becoming a successful businessman and followed the rest of his family and went to Harvard. It's not 100% clear how he got the idea to ship ice around the globe. One source says it was a trip to the Caribbean that inspired him to ship loads of ice, but another suggests that it was during a party. Someone joked that Tudor should start shipping ice around the world. I believe that it was probably both. Tudor had his million dollar idea. Now he needed a ship, some cargo, and he needed to protect his idea. In 1806, at the young age of 23, Tudor had purchased his first ship, the Favorite, to carry a cargo of ice from Charlestown to Martinique. He had harvested the ice from his family's farm in Saugus, a town just outside of Boston. In February of 1806, his ship was on its way to Martinique. The Boston Gazette quoted, No joke, a vessel has cleared at Customs House with a cargo of ice. We hope this will not be a slippery speculation. When I was originally reading this story, I thought to myself, if you just ship ice to somewhere that's never seen it before, who's going to buy it? They probably didn't even know what it is. So I did some more research, and I learned that Tudor was a pretty smart guy. He had sent his brother and cousin to different ports and governments to advertise the ice shipment beforehand, as well as secure the rights to monopolize the ice trade from the different governments around the world. That way, he wouldn't have to deal with any competitors for the first 10 years or so. But let's go back to that shipment to Martinique. Tudor did okay. He lost a good amount of money, about half the product had melted, and he learned that once he got to port, no one had the ability to store his product. He was still able to sell what he had left and reduce his losses. Overall, he lost about $4,500 on the voyage. That didn't slow him down, though. He continued to ship ice around the world, slowly learning things that would help him build his ice empire. He eventually figured out that hay was not very good at keeping ice from melting. Sawdust was up to 50% more efficient at keeping the ice fresh. It was also free. He also started building ice houses at the ports. These buildings were built to house over 100 tons of ice, and built with especially thick double walls to help insulate and stop the ice from melting. He also started giving the ice away for free as a marketing endeavor to get people hooked on ice. One of his partners also developed a horse-drawn ice cutter that made harvesting ice much easier. Tudor was able to triple his harvest, as before he had to hire laborers to be out on the ice with saws. A dangerous endeavor, to say the least. At its peak, the Tudor Ice Company was shipping around 145,000 tons of ice. 
Tudor had fought many hardships, going into debtor's prison a few times, being nearly bankrupt, losing cargo and vessels to nature. But around the 1840s, Ice took off thanks to his undying perseverance. Ice was no longer just a rich person's luxury. It was something that for a little extra money, you could get a nice cold drink, you could buy ice cream from a local coffee shop, or you could take a nice cold bath after a long day's work. Frederick Tudor passed away in 1864 in comfort with a beautiful wife and six children. By the time he had passed, he wasn't the only player in the game anymore. The ice trade business was huge, but none of it could have thrived as it did without the Ice King, without Frederick Tudor. Now that we know the historical relevance of ice, we have to ask ourselves, what is ice? It seems like a simple question with a simple answer. Frozen water, right? But it can get a little bit more complicated than that. Now bear with me, I'm going to get a little nerdy on you. Ice is water frozen into a solid state. And amazingly, it's found all over the solar system and the universe. But did you know that there are at least 18 different kinds of ice in our known universe? On Earth, we have a very particular kind of ice called Ice 1H that forms due to the temperature and the atmospheric pressure found on Earth. Another interesting fact about ice is that it is significantly less dense than water, but it is increased in volume. Now, why does that matter? When talking about the modern state of ice in a bar setting, we have to talk about the different methods of which ice is made. Machine-made ice, which is the most common. Mold-made ice, which you may find in small cocktail bars in your home. And Quinebell ice, which is the kind of Cadillac or BMW of ice machines. So let's figure out how these work. For your standard home or bar ice machine, basically a gaseous refrigerant is heated, then pressurized to cool it down to a liquid state, which condenses and makes the part where the ice cube forms cold enough to bring water down to exactly 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Then the refrigerant is drained and the cubes fall out of their mold into a bin. This process is very fast and efficient while also being cheap, which is a bonus for bars. The disadvantage is that the shapes that these ice machines make aren't usually great for making cocktails. The ice is usually very small and it dilutes very quickly. The ice machine focuses on quantity over quality as it would just take too much time to produce larger ice. Molds are pretty simple, made usually out of silicone or plastic. You fill them with water, throw them in the freezer, and a half day later you have large ice cubes or spheres. But most molds produce very cloudy ice. Why is that? The short answer is that they aren't insulated very well. When you put those cubes in the freezer, they are rapidly being frozen from all sides, pushing all the gases that are found in water to the middle of the ice. A lot of people will say if you boil your water or if you only use distilled water, that your ice will turn out clear. Neither of these is 100% correct. The answer to getting clear ice? Directional freezing. By putting your molds into an insulator, it allows the cold air into one side, such as an igloo cooler, and probably turning the temperature on your freezer up a little bit, and with some experimentation, you can force the ice to freeze slower, allowing the gases to escape. I'll post a video on how to do this later on once the show airs. The last type of ice is from a Kleinbell machine. Basically, it slowly freezes 300 pounds of water over three days, creating one giant block of ice. Remember that directional freezing I was talking about? That's how a Kleinbow machine works. Basically, it uses what a home bar machine uses on a giant scale. So essentially, there's a 
gas that flows over a cold plate, slowly cooling the ice over three days, allowing the gases to escape. Now, once you pull out that 300 pound block of ice, you just cut it up however you want. When designing an ice program for a cocktail bar, there's three things that you want to take into consideration. Time, space, and money. All three different types of ice have their advantages and disadvantages. Ice machines, such as a Hoshizaki or a cold draft system, can be really advantageous, and that's usually what I would suggest for a medium-sized cocktail bar. Um, they produce about three-quarter to an inch-sized cubes, and they don't take up a lot of space, and they don't take up a lot of time either. Um, I can see where the startup cost would be uh, disadvantageous for a newly opening cocktail bar, as they usually cost around four to eight thousand dollars. So that's something that you definitely have to take in consideration. They work really well though, and if you can afford one, they're worth the investment. Molds are usually what I suggest for smaller cocktail bars, as they're simple, cheap, and easy. You can buy a massive set of molds for under a hundred dollars, and they take barely any time at all. You basically just fill them up and throw them in a freezer. Uh, they do take up a lot of space though. And I can see for a small bar dedicating a small freezer just towards ice cubes, I could see that being uh, disadvantageous to them. Um, as far as a coin bell machine, that's a very special occasion. Um, I would venture to say that there's less than 10, maybe even less than 5 bars in the country that actually own one. Um, it's just not feasible, it's so expensive, unless you're opening like a high volume cocktail bar that you know that you need that Klein Bell ice machine, it's just not going to be worth it for you. Um, it's probably going to be more worth it for you to um, have somebody with a Klein Bell machine cut and deliver the ice for you though. That's going to be your best bet and probably your cheapest and easiest option as well. I came across a thought-provoking quote by Jason Cott. He is a partner in Alchemy Consulting, a company that services bars in New York City's East Village. Cott said, it's not just about bringing the temperature of the drink down to the correct level. It's about adding the correct water content to each drink. The hidden ingredient in every cocktail is water. The state of ice today and the world of cocktailing is fascinating and filled with creativity. There are so many interesting ways bartenders are experimenting with ice, from different shapes and sizes to the infusion of flavors and ingredients, all with the consideration that ice is so much more than a chiller. My first true consideration of ice began over a year ago at, Saint, at the St. Augustine Distillery in St. Augustine, Florida. Upstairs in the same building, which is also an old ice house, is the ice plant. On their cocktail menu is first the tools used to carve their ice, the, then the different styles available, from shaved to long rocks to spheres, one or two inch blocks or pebbled. And then this quote, ice is the cornerstone of the American bar, an integral component of a well-made drink. Our mission is to return to the craft of iced harvesting by freezing purified water in large blocks. Our bartenders can make drinks colder and with precisely the desired amount of dilution. I was immediately fascinated and then frustrated as it was our last stop of the day. I wanted to learn more and to try more, and in doing some reading, I discovered that each cocktail has the perfect cube for it, and it isn't your standard machine-made ice, nicknamed hotel ice in the biz. 
Cubes are perfect for shaking, highballs call for spheres, and tiki and juleps like pebbles or crushed ice. The ice plant was definitely a source of inspiration, and after playing with different molds and freezing temperatures at home, I was looking for the next step. In my research then is when I discovered the aviary, labeled a state-of-the-art drink kitchen in Chicago that employs an actual ice chef. And he's constantly, creatively experimenting with different kinds of ice, molds, chillers, and ingredients. I saw a video of them creating an old-fashioned in the rocks. They filled water balloons, then suspended them, and blast chilled them, which created this sort of ice shell. Where the outside was frozen, but the inside water was still liquid to be extracted. Then they mixed it old-fashioned, injected it into the pear-shaped cube, and garnished it with the lemon or an orange peel in the hole on top. They then placed it into a rocks glass with a small mallet on the side. The customer is then to crack open the shell, transforming it from an old, uh, transforming it into an old-fashioned on the rocks. This is amazing. This, admittedly, is an extreme example as far as infusion of cubes and creation of cubes goes. There are much simpler ways to create fancy cubes, and you can use almost anything to do it. I recommend silicone molds as they're the most malleable and forgivable, and there's all sorts of shapes and sizes on the market right now. As far as ingredients go, I have experimented with coffee, citrus, herbs, peppers, and flowers. I attempted with wine, but as everyone already knows before me, wine doesn't freeze. Um, beware though, there will, when you make ice cubes at home um, and you're using different ingredients, there is a floating component to it. So if you're hopeful for like your leaves to stay in the bottom of a, of a silicone mold, I suggest like getting them wet, sticking them down and kind of holding them down in the crevices of your, of your mold. It really all depends on your desired aesthetic as far as presentation of your cube goes and experimentation. But what about the water itself? When I make ice at home, I admittedly just use tap water. I like Davenport water. Some say you shouldn't use tap water due to the gaseous nature and its chemical components, that you should use water that's filtered somehow, but I don't think that matters too much when you're making infused cubes at home. Unless you're specifically using a freeze from the top-down method when making your ice, and clarity is important, tap water is just fine. So that brings us to what if, is, what if clarity is important? And that is artisan ice, or ice made from a Kleinball machine. Shale told us a bit about the machine and how it chills from the top down and creates these big, beautiful blocks of clear ice. This is the same kind of ice that the ice plant uses. So what? So is it better ice? There are a few things to take into consideration here. The aesthetics of artisan ice provide a much better drink presentation, in my opinion. The clear cubes are beautiful. It doesn't have any gas trapped inside of it, like the ice that is um, made frozen from the bottom up, so the ice will last longer in your cocktail. And it doesn't retain any residual freezer flavors like hotel ice. But it isn't that easy to come by, especially in the Quad Cities. There are in the United States currently 20 artisan ice suppliers. The one that I read up on Favorite Ice is in Washington, D.C. They started in 2012 as a company that mostly supplies ice to ice sculptors, and now 70% of their business is just delivering cubes to cocktail bars. In their peak season, they make about 1,500 pounds of ice a week. 
Um, that's making a 300-pound block of ice that takes three days to chill five times a week. They must have more than one Kleinball machine available. And this is the downside of artisan ice, scar scarcity, convenience, and cost. Now, in the Quad Cities, there is only one Kleinball machine, and most of the time it sits unused at ANA refrigeration. But one of these days, Shale and I are going to get our hands on a block of ice from there and have an ice party. But until then, you're going to have to make your own artisan ice at home. So, Debbie, uh, we've taken this month-long, month-plus-long road of uh, learning about ice together. Yeah. Um, what are some of the favorite parts uh, of that road, and what are the things that you are uh, taking away from all of the research um, that you've done? Well, uh, my favorite part, I think, overall is just learning about something that I've been interested in for a while now, and then um, new forms of like home experimentation. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm taking away from it is kind of the quote that I, like prefacing or paraphrasing a quote that I gave earlier, which was that how important ice is in a cocktail and that it is mm -hmm. um, often a neglected or not uh, thought about or considered ingredient yeah. in the beverage itself absolutely um and so just how important it really is that's what i'm taking away from it sure so will you say that um for you personally um it has this research gonna affect you more at home than it will uh you know when you go out to a bar um because it seems like you really just like playing around with ice a lot. <laughs> I, do. <laughs> I do like playing around with. I do like playing around with ice a lot, but I also like experience, like try going out and exploring what other people are doing too. Mm -hmm. um, but it's made me also much more thoughtful uh, of how people present drinks to me too. Like the other night, I had a cocktail and I, I asked for it on the rocks, and like I was given very light rocks. Mm -hmm. And I was irritated <laughs> by that <laughs> because I wanted more ice. Yeah. Um, you know, like I feel like when you ask for on the rocks, it's your glass is full, not just like a few cubes. So it's it's just overall made me more conscious of ice mm -hmm. and how I make it at home, but also how I experience it when I'm out at a bar too. Sure. Yeah. Um, one thing that, I, that I've kind of come to the conclusion on is that... Um, while ice is not like um, a, you don't have to focus on having really good ice in your cocktails, but it shows me the dedication that you're putting into your cocktails if you do uh, have like some sort of ice, ice program. It's like, okay, so maybe this bar, that no, not every bar can be the aviary, not every bar can get you know, giant blocks of ice delivered to their door every day. For sure. But if they have, uh, if they take a little bit of time or a little bit of effort into their ice, that goes a long way as far as like um, me judging them, I guess for lack of a better term, on, um, on their cocktail program as a whole. Um, because, you know, there is almost nothing sexier than getting an old fashioned on a crystal clear ice cube or a sphere. And for sure uh, we 
we drink first with our eyes and um, putting that visual uh, that visual um, aspect to it in there um, just shows how much the people that are making those cocktails care about them. Yeah, and have given the thought to it as we have as well. Mm -hmm. And so that there's a certain level of like interest or, or love even put into the, you know, like the built cocktail. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I, that I really loved is I just, I just think the history of ice is just so important. Like there were so many details that I could have gone over uh, in the show, but I, that I did not because they're just like monotonous. Like I read like, it was like a, probably a, eight to ten page paper on Frederick Tudor and Such just like all, all of his like um, all of his ups and downs and just like everything that that he did everybody that he screwed over um, all of the all of the uh, um, sacrifices that he made well, and the tenacity of his spirit, like to yeah. not give up on something that like was filled with naysayers for literally decades. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. such a cool story. Yeah, like it's it's almost it, to me it almost seems like it's made up, but it's real because <laughs> it sounds made up. Like it I, does. I'm sure that you, uh, as I have, uh, paraphrased and shared the story with people. Mm -hmm. And when you go down that hole, like the the look of skepticism is always on people's faces. Like, oh no, no, this is a real thing. Thing, mm -hmm. And it is like affecting us still right now today, because yeah. um, when you when you start off and being like, let me tell you about the history of ice, <laughs> people are like, this is so sounds so boring, nerd. But <laughs> exactly, but it's actually very fast. It's very interesting. It is. It is. I, I I think the people who appreciate history and cocktails will appreciate the story. Um, I don't know if other people will, but. Uh, Either way, I think I've benefited from it. I, it makes me it does make me wonder like where we would be uh, without him. Like I've if, if, that if he too. never started up the ice trade, where where would it be now? Like would refrigeration as a whole be just behind where it is now? I don't know. Yes, would like was he actually a sort of inspiration for the like the need to create? refrigeration or the demand for it i guess i i well I, th I think so i think i think you hit the nail on the head right there is while he uh is he created the people's want for ice like in their houses even yes yes like without him you know it might have been another 30 or 40 years before somebody was like you know what i should do i should really start selling ice um and then that might have might have even taken longer because then you know it would take time for the people who are like oh I guess oh, I wonder if there's a way that we can fabricate ice you know it just feels like it would push everything further down further along down the chain yeah or just like a, a completely different origin story you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah but also one interesting thing is that his as we see right here history is cyclical. Um, you know, we started out with getting giant box of ice cut from the river. Right. That crystal clear, perfect, wonderful. Um, and then we got into refrigeration and, you know, the you know, the small chips ice cubes. And those became the standard for, you know, sixty, seventy, eighty years. Um and now we're kind of going back to wanting that giant block of ice, you know, that uh has a freshly cut you know, cube or sphere cut out of it. Sure. 
Yeah, that's that's actually that's interesting. But you know, we could also say that for like pre-prohibition cocktails and oh yeah, you know, like so many things. Like you're drinking a Rattler right now. Like mm-hmm. so many things that people are discovering. Like oh my gosh, this is a thing that used to be available. Let's give it a whirl. And oh, there's a reason why it was available is because it's delicious or enjoyable or mm-hmm. pleasing to the eye or whatever it may be. Sure. Well, I. I gotta say, personally, I am really glad that we did ice as our first show because I don't, for me, as far as like my enjoyment uh, with making the show, I don't think I could have enjoyed making uh, an ice show more. Um, yeah, I, lo- I mean, like, you know how I feel about ice. Yeah. And um, this was very, it, it was fun, a learning experience, not only about ice, but also like how we're making our change. Yeah. So it, it's enjoyable all the way out. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's. But before we wrap up, let's real quick talk about um, next month's show and maybe do like a little little preview. Preview. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah. next month uh, we're going to be diving deep into ciders. Ciders. Um, uh, I believe we are going to go up to uh, Wilson's Orchard. We are. And we're going to just go cider heavy. I'm so excited because it's, it's an orchard that I've been going to for years and years and years. And then since they started making cider, it's been a phenomenal product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm excited to go up and see it and to really share uh, with people um, how craft cideries are just like craft breweries mm-hmm. versus yeah, the absolutely. macro. You know, like I think that there's so much that people don't know about the beverage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm excited to learn and, and share that. Yeah. Uh, one cool thing that I uh, like about Wilson's and a lot of cideries in general is that um, it's kind of like a farm to table right there. Like with beer, yeah. not a lot of breweries, some do grow their own malt and hops and have their own proprietary yeast strains. But um, mo- I'll say like, at least as far as I know, most cideries uh, grow their own apples. And or so, like, if even not grow their own, use locally sourced, you yeah. know, like I'm thinking mm-hmm. of a couple of different Michigan cideries that like they use only Michigan products. Yeah. So that and it's like also similar to a farm to table or all local. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm also just lo- uh, really wanting to learn about the different types of cider. Like I, I know some basics, but I don't, um, you know, I'm not an expert by any means, but I know that I'd. You know, I love a nice, crisp, dry cider. And I think that it will be fun because what I love about ciders, one of the many things that I love about ciders is that I feel like it's a beverage that can bridge the gap between beer drinkers and wine drinkers. Oh, absolutely. And so we can talk about that. We can explore like different yeast strains. You know, I love a cider made with a champagne yeast Mm -hmm. and, and over, you know, kind of being able to open up a way to connect more people in the craft drinking market, maybe beer, cider, wine, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And not just wine drinkers to beer drinkers, but beer drinkers to wine drinkers as well. For sure. Um, you know, one, one example that comes to mind for me is I've seen a lot of uh, hopped ciders uh, yeah. on the market lately. So that's like an, in- an interesting um, crossover between beer and ciders. So... Yeah, I'm 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 looking forward I'm looking forward to it. Me too. All right. Well, that's it for uh this episode of Two Seats of the Bar. Uh, I hope that 
everybody enjoyed our new format. Uh, I'm sure that it's just going to get better from here on out. Confident. Um, it was a definitely a learning experience, and we're just going to keep trucking along. So, um, my name is Shale Sage. I'm Debbie Davis. This is Two, two seats, seats at, at the, the Bar. bar.